Hi there. Before I pass you off to Professors Vivek Bald and Lisa Parks, as they introduced last night's speaker, Karen Kaplan, I just wanted to welcome you to the spring 2019 semester at Comparative Media Studies and Writing. Spring, of course, is a relative term here. It's February 21st today, and we just had our third snowstorm in three weeks. Oh, I should say. I'm Andrew Whitaker, Communications Director here. I'm really looking forward to this semester in part because of two conferences we have coming up. We have rebooted Media in Transition, a biennial conference that back in 1999 helped launch our program, but has been on hiatus for a few years. The call for papers has come and gone for this year's conference, but we'll be recording the whole thing. So as you listen to our stuff, keep an ear out in late May as we post Media in Transition recordings. The theme, as it was in 99, is democracy and digital media. The other conference is called Beyond Intelligence, and it's hosted by our design lab. The deadline for that call for papers is coming up on March 1st, so pretty soon. The conference asked participants to, quote, broaden their focus and start addressing designing for distributed, hyper-connected, and complex intelligent ecosystems. So get on that if that's your intellectual wheelhouse. Okay, here's Vivek and Lisa introducing Karen Kaplan and her talk, Bringing the War Home, Visual Aftermaths and Domestic Disturbances in the Era of Modern Warfare. Welcome. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I am Vivek Bald, and I am the Director of Graduate Studies at CMS. Um, and I just wanted to welcome you to the, the, the terms colloquium series. This is the first in the, in the colloquium. And um, we have a number of great uh, events coming up over the course of the semester. Um, just to, to name a, f a few people who are uh, slated to be here. Um, Nick Bree Gariello, who is a pre-doctoral fellow here at MIT. Um, David Craig and Stuart Cunningham. Yaroslav Belch. Sohail Dolatzai, uh, the Disc Collective, uh, the Caribbean Historian, Rita Goldtree, um, and we have people talking about everything from, uh, from the, the birth of uh, video games to, um, to, well, there actually we have a kind of a sub-theme going having to do with current military technologies and media. Um, and today's event will kick that off. Um, I'm going to hand things over to Lisa, mm -hmm. um, my colleague Lisa Parks, to introduce our guest. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the CMS Colloquium today. Um, my name is Lisa Parks. I'm professor of comparative media studies here at MIT. Um, and today's lecture is also part of the Civic Arts Lecture Series that has been organized by Marisa Jong. I think she will be joining us. There she is. Um, and I want to say thank you to Marisa because she's been really great in helping to, um, to organize this series and bring in speakers and um, a variety of issues she's been thinking about. So um, it's a unique pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Um, Professor Karen Kaplan is a highly esteemed scholar of American studies at UC Davis with research specializations in visual culture, critical military studies, science and technology studies, and gender studies. She's the author of Aerial Aftermaths, 
Wartime from Above, which came out with Duke just uh, this last year. And I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. And I'm going to be handing this book around. Can you pass that around so people can read it? Um, she's author of that book, as well as Questions of Travel, Postmodern Discourses of Displacement. Also the co-author and editor of Life in the Age of Drone Warfare. Um, another book called Introduction to Women's Studies, Gender in a Transnational World. Another, Between Women and Woman and Nation, Transnational Feminisms and the State. And a very famous book that many of you have probably heard of, Scattered Hegemonies, Postmodernity and Transnational Feminist Practices. In addition to her book, she's the um, creator of two large-scale digital multimedia scholarly works. The first is called Dead Reckoning from 2007, and the second is called Precision Targets from 2010, 2010. And you can see, you can find information about these projects online. Um, Professor Kaplan is also the series co-editor of Next Wave, New Directions in Women's Studies for Duke University Press. And I have been following Karen's work for more than two decades. Uh, when I was a graduate student, I found questions of travel extremely inspiring and doing really interdisciplinary, critical feminist scholarship that hardly anybody else at the time was doing. Um, I kind of followed her from afar for a long time as a, you know, somebody who had deep admiration but a little intimidated by the stealth of her intellect and presence. And then finally, um, I reached out to her probably, what was it? I don't know how many years ago. But we ended up working on the Life in the Age of Drone Warfare uh, book together. And she um, was uh, enormously uh, visionary and instrumental in moving that book forward to its completion and also contributed um, a brilliant chapter to it. Uh, Karen is intellectually creative, generous, and rigorous in all that she takes on, both in her scholarship, in her uh, classroom activities. She's a, 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 a renegade and a pioneer. Every time she tells me about a class she's teaching, I wish I was sitting in it and participating. She experiments in all kinds of ways that we should all be thinking about all the time. And, even though she won't get into that today in her talk, I encourage you to follow up with her and ask her questions about that afterwards. Um, she's also consistently offered brilliant and new ways of thinking about this constellation of technologies of visualization, militarization, and social power, including gendered and sexualized forms of social power. And I think we're going to see some of that work today. Um, her most recent monograph, which you may also say a few words about, and which I've just handed around the room, I'll just say a couple things about. Um, as, it's, as I said, it's called Aerial Aftermaths, Wartime from Above. And it's really a tour, tour de force. It's a magisterial work. In it, Kaplan explicates how and why publics have come to understand views from above as offering an omniscient and objective perspective. Building on work in cultural geography and art history, the project begins with an analysis of views from hot air balloons in the late 18th century and then moves through aerial photography shot during World War I uh, to contemporary use of remote sensing satellites and drones in relation to the war on terror. 
And in this analysis, Kaplan is unpacking instabilities that lie at the core of modern visual culture. She challenges her reader to recognize the varied and diverse ways of seeing that have emerged historically with aerial imagery rather than to idly embrace the view from above and the kind of objective and omniscient affordances that it seems to present to us. Um, so she challenges this form as a kind of penultimate visual form. And um, the book was really just published last year. It's already being written up and reviewed widely in an array of um, interesting uh, journals. And um, it's had a huge impact so far not only in the humanities, but also in uh, beyond in, in art, art history, also in geography as well. Um, so the title of Kaplan, today Kaplan is going to, Professor Kaplan will share new work with us, and the title of her talk is Bringing the War Home, Visual Aftermaths and Domestic Disturbances in the Era of Modern Warfare. So please join me in welcoming Professor Kaplan to MIT. Lisa told me that introduction, her introduction was going to be very short. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little, um, I, I, I think I would be very frightened of, the, uh, of, of anything that was longer. Thank you, Lisa. I feel very welcomed and really happy to be here. Lisa is one of my most cherished colleagues, and so it's wonderful to see her in her native habitat here at MIT and to meet some of you I've heard about and to make some new acquaintances as well. I'm really delighted to be here. Um, so yeah, this is um, a new paper, and uh, I'm, uh, I need feedback. So I may be cueing some of that, posing questions to myself a bit. Uh, and uh, if you think of something you need that needs some uh, further elaboration or that's sticking point, please feel free to bring it up. And hopefully, we'll have some discussion um, as I uh, move along here. So, um, so to begin, Lisa, <laughs> I'm beginning, no, I'm trying to move to the next slide. Here we go. Okay. Okay. So when and where is warfare? This question and a related one, what counts as warfare, have preoccupied me for a long time. In many ways, uh, these are peculiar questions because anyone who has lived through a war will tell you with horrifying certainty that you know it when you see it, hear it, feel it. But wars can begin in ambiguous instants and innocuous places, and their endings and after effects are often even more amorphous and lingering. Officially, the violence work of warfare, to borrow Michael Siegel's phrase, is conducted by the state or constellations of states, yet long-running conflicts are also enacted by proxy by non-governmental groups and many different actors on behalf of myriad interests. It's not just a question of definition uh, of declared or undeclared war. It's also a question of perception. How do we know when we're at war? How and when do we sense it? When war takes place at a distance, as it so often does, these days who can imagine that they are not at war? What makes violence legible, known, and recognized as war. In approaching these questions from various directions, I found myself investigating the subject position of the privileged citizen of the United States, the one who's white enough, wealthy enough, 
or simply sufficiently ideologically inducted into exceptionalist nationalism to move about in everyday life largely unaware of the warfare conducted globally under the sign of the U.S. flag. Or, to put another way, if this generic figure of U.S. power and prestige knows that we're at war, they don't have to pay its costs in their everyday life. It cannot easily disrupt their work, their play, or their sleep at night. Of course, as the so-called war on terror stretches into its 18th year, the population of the United States has paid an enormous cost as the budget of the Defense Department has swollen to unimaginable proportions and our social welfare programs have been starved as investments in education and infrastructure have languished. And many people live in what could be considered to be urban, suburban, and rural war zones interior to the United States, increasingly and terrifyingly so under the present administration. In addition to the violent policing of targeted neighborhoods and the inequities of incarceration in the United States, now even otherwise privileged middle-class children are at risk of being slaughtered in their classrooms. And if that's not warfare, what is? My questions about the perception of warfare have everything to do with the seemingly obstinate inability of many of my co-patriots to see the war we are in at home as well as abroad. Our failure to make connections between people at a distance with whom we might have powerful affinities and to attach ourselves instead to those at home who will, if we're not careful, bring about our destruction. I explored some of these ideas recently in my book, Aerial Aftermath, arguing that the temporality of wartime aftermath is not linear uh, and often cannot be pinned to a discrete beginning and end. Warfare's trauma bends time and alters spatial perception, producing specific kinds of aftermaths as modes of understanding that animate our everyday lives, uh, even far from the official battlefield. I've been influenced by Mary Favret's study of those who, as she puts it, are living through but not in a war, focusing on British literary output of the late 18th and early 19th century. Favret is asked how war becomes part of the barely registered substance of our everyday, how military conflict on a global scale looked and felt to a population whose armies and navies waged war for decades, but always at a distance. And when I first read this, when I first read her book, it uh, came out in 2010, and I, I read it at that time, it really hit me because it felt like the conversations that I have with my students, with many people in the United States, sort of resonated with this idea that actually we've been waging war for a really long time period, and yet, um, as, as she puts it, um, um, military conflict on a global scale, how it looks and feels to a population whose armies and navies wage war for decades, but always at a distance, does it register at all or, ba or barely in our everyday lives? Um, the colonial and, and imperial wars that Favret discusses in her book, War at a Distance, um, are now prosecuted by the United States. We go to war almost without ceasing. That is, we draw upon what Mark Neoclius calls a war power police power nexus to conduct state and non-state violence work even as we've been taught that war is what takes place somewhere else over there beyond the reach of eyes and ears. I would argue that this numbing projection of warfare toward a vague distance constitutes our domestic realm. We, the culturally and economically dominant citizens of the United States, understand the nation as the place that is free of the wars we conduct elsewhere 
at a distance. The fallacies of such an understanding are numerous and the geopolitical results are deadly. In my comments today, I want to explore this spatial and temporal production of warfare in modernity a bit further through a consideration of the format of photo montage, a kind of collage that draws on the photographic products of news and information, as well as fashion and interior design. My thoughts on this are prompted by Martha Rossler's photo montages, specifically those that draw together imagery of warfare and domestic environments and architectures. In 1967, when the war in Vietnam was at its destructive nadir, Rossler created the first collages in a series titled Bringing the War Home, House Beautiful. Revived in 2004 to address the second Persian Gulf War with the flip title, House Beautiful, Bringing the War Home, Rossler again pasted together imagery drawn from high gloss com consumerist magazines and conflict zone photography. The two series now share the same title, House Beautiful, bringing the war home, folding their times and space into discontinuous contact. As I'll discuss further in just a few minutes, the format of these works brings together seemingly incommensurate elements, images of exquisite interiors, glamorous consumer commodities, and the landscapes and bodies damaged and destroyed by warfare, producing art of great immediacy and visceral power, disturbing notions of domesticity and war. I've wanted to write about Rossler's House Beautiful, Bringing the War Home series for many years. Uh, it's always been pushed onto the back burner uh, by the press of other commitments. This past fall, I taught an upper division undergraduate seminar on the visual culture of conflict photojournalism, and we spent some time on Rossler's work. Among all of the contemporary imagery we considered, the students were most enthusiastic and inspired by Rossler. And this inspired me, in turn, finally, to start to organize my ideas about the collages in a more focused way. Moving through these powerful images with my students, I realized they provided a way for me to think through, once again, the questions that preoccupy me. Where and when is war and for whom? As a cultural figure, uh, Martha Rossler can be pigeonholed in many different ways, and I'm not interested in defining or circumscribing her work by glibly attaching labels like feminist or Jewish or socialist or even anti-militarist, although she's publicly identified herself in relation to those identities and practices at times, uh, and insightful critics have linked her to those identities and social movements. Since Rossler began her art practice in the 1960s, she has avoided the commercial art market and even for many years sidestepped mainstream museums and high art galleries, although this is no longer the case. She has worked in all manner of media, photography, performance art, sculpture, video and film, and photo montage. And of course, she's written many articles, uh, essays, and other textual works. She's also um, engaged in collaborations and group projects and ongoing activist interventions, um, very often organized around um, homelessness or uh, critiques of uh, capitalism. Um, these circulations and detours have always seemed to me to signal a maverick artivist practice, one that can be situated without too much pigeonholing in relation to particular strands of feminist politics, especially those attentive to social and economic class and to critiques of imperialism and racism. As Rossler commented recently, pretty much everyone hated my work when I first made it, uh, except for feminists. The work that pretty much everyone hated at first included bold explorations of what Karen Moss has described as the spaces between private and public, personal and social, 
everyday life and the art world, like the photo montage series Body Beautiful or Beauty Knows No Pain from 1966, created between 1966 and 1972. Uh, while this kind of critique of the male gaze and commodified sexualization of the female body has become more commonplace now, um, this in combination of insistent, even aggressive manipulation of both pornographic, erotic, and commercial imagery mixed with a humorous, even affectionate embrace of feminized spaces in the domestic realm produce ironic works that still have the power to grab our attention and make us think. She explored this terrain further in a, the significant uh, video works, uh, Semiotics of the Kitchen from 1975, where she brandishes kitchen implements according to their alphabetical order, um, and uh, Visual Statistics of a Citizen, simply obtained from 1977, which is about eugenics, measurement, et cetera. Yet Rossler never seems to toe any line or reverently celebrate authority in doctrine or practice. Her work is sophisticated and conceptual, yet legible in at least some way to the most naive undergraduate in my public university classroom, as well as to the mo most highfalutin art critics who now embrace her work and exhibit it in respectful retrospectives in world capital museums. This relentless inquiry between private and public personal and social, everyday life and the art world seems to me to offer an engagement with the questions with which I began, where and when is war and who can or cannot know the waging of war and how that knowledge becomes palpable. As Rossler herself has commented, the House Beautiful series was not about, quote, uncovering new information, but about reframing what we already knew and continue to know. And one thing I want to think about as we look at some of these images and think about it together is um, who's we here. Rossler's uh, Vietnam era photo montages might have been neatly periodized as early work, but she returned to the format as one of her responses to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. As she explained in 2008, she was surprised to find herself returning to the medium of photo montage after so many years, but she realized that the format itself makes the point. She, as she writes, it's the same message. It has the same politics, which is, we are responsible for this. This is us telling ourselves that life is beautiful here at home, and this is what we do abroad. It's this relationship between the two series, one from the late 1960s and the other from the first decade of the 2000s, that's made meaningful through their format, photo montage, that I want to engage here. Photo montage like one of its primary components, photography, has struggled to find acceptance in, in the world of fine art. Something particularly interesting happened to, in relation to this format during and just after the First World War as a technique that had been practiced primarily by advertisers and the creators of postcards and greeting cards became adopted by a cadre of artists who were bitterly affected by the war and engaged in radical critiques of both bourgeois and fascist authoritarian regimes. Um, rising most notably as an overtly political art form practiced by surrealists and Dadaists just after the First World War, but also continuing throughout the 20th century across other art movements, photo montage draws on ingredients that are available to anyone in an era of mass print culture. Newspapers, magazines, photographs, glue, paper, and of course, a pair of scissors. Rossler's choice of photo montage for the first series, Bringing the War Home, can be linked to 
uh, the kind of cheeky rebukes staged by both the Surrealists and Dadaists to the bourgeois elitist world of high art and to the constraints of authoritarianism and the horrors of fascism. While Rossler has linked herself more closely to the marvelous surreal collages created by Max Ernst and therefore to the Zurich Dada group, it's hard not to position her work in relation to the more overtly political Dadaists from Berlin, like John Hartfield, uh, for example. Born under difficult circumstances as Helmut Hertzfeld, he changed his name uh, to an English variant as a protest against German nationalism during World War I, where he was um, put in a mental uh, uh, institution because of his resistance to um, armed service uh, in, in the German army. Hartfield's open embrace of the Communist Party, his hatred of fascism, and his scathing attacks on the limits of Weimar democracy post-war produced an extraordinary body of photo montages, some published as book or magazine covers, and others circulating as works of art on their own. I'm also inevitably drawn to make connections between Rossler's deployment of the format of photo montage and the proto-feminist art of Hannah Hoch. I don't have time to say much about Hoch today, um, except to mention, first of all, that it's doubtful that some of the men who are credited with inventing Berlin Dada photo montage, like George Gross and Raoul Hausmann, who was involved with Hoch at the time, uh, even though he was married, <laughs> would have moved in that direction without Hoch's influence. Unlike her male compatriots, Hoch's attention is often directed to the ironies and tragedies of gender in the period, and her sensibilities, especially in her early work, for me, resonate throughout Rossler's photo montage series. It's precisely this engagement with the objects and instruments of everyday life and mass culture that either sinks or elevates the format of photo montage with critics. If post-World War I Dada's photo montage aimed to uh, shock by aggressively juxtaposing, oh, I think I need to be at this one, uh, by juxtaposing even suturing elements that would otherwise never share the same space or the same body, the method itself was viewed dimly by those who associated it with gimmicks like the 19th century composite photographs of Oscar um, Gustav Rylander. This is Rylander's most famous composite, The Two Ways of Life, a sentimental moral allegory. And one side, uh, uh, on, if you're on one side of this, you're going to hell. And if you're on the other side, of course, you're going to heaven. Uh, or the schlocky holiday cards and novelty postcards that charmed and amused consumers throughout the 20th century. One more black mark against photo montage among esthetes was its association with the pastime of children. Um, that's really a black mark if you're an artist. Or the craft work of females sequestered in the home. For example, making paper dolls, collages, or silhouettes, all banned from the arena of high art. In an era of increasing respect for the realism of photography, any whiff of fakery would also doom photo montage to be regarded as less than honest or simply a hoax. This is an extremely famous hoax from the 1920s. Um, despite prejudices against such works, photo montage can be identified as a key artistic format throughout the 20th century. Without attempting more than a cursory scan of the post-World War II notables, I would just mention Robert Rauschenberg, whose silkscreen collages drew upon photojournalistic imagery. Uh, pop artist Richard Hamilton's photo montages drew together tabloid kitsch, domestic interiors, and pop iconography. One has to mention Andy Warhol, of course. More recent engagements with the format by John Stazacker deserve a place in this genealogy. 
well, overtly political and linked to the gestalt of the Berlin Dada group, Brit British photomontagist Peter Kennard has produced devastatingly critical imagery from the 1960s to the present moment. And I have to say, um, Thatcher pukes up the welfare state from 1986 has to be one of my own personal favorite images of all time. Uh, and more uh, resolutely outside the art world per se, I'd point to punk zine practices, particularly the People of Color Zine Project, and of course there are, there are many others. This whirlwind tour of 20th and early 21st century photo montage is just meant to situate Rossler's work in the context of surrealist collage, Dada activist photo montage, and the experimental design aesthetic of pop art. Like the early Dada photo montages from the 1920s and 30s, Rossler's house beautiful series calls attention to the way the images themselves are created. The seams show, as it were, signaling the labor not only of the montage, uh, but of the material conditions of mass-produced print culture. But drawing on post-Dada situationist strategies of detournement, throwing up decoys and disruptions uh, to disturb uh, the naturalized mythologies of everyday life under capitalism, Rossler avoids the pitfalls of intentionally didactic artwork. Or at least I'm going to make this argument. And I'll just, as an aside here, I just saw there's a, a small retrospective of Rossler's work on exhibit at the Jewish Museum in Manhattan, um, at which I saw last weekend. And when I saw some of it all together, then I wasn't sure that my argument is quite correct. So if anybody else has been there, that's something we could talk about afterwards. But I'm going to stick to it for the purposes of the paper. Um, so I think she avoids the pitfalls of intentionally didactic art artwork. As John Berger has pointed out, photo montage is at its weakest uh, when it's purely symbolic, when it uses its own means to further rhetorical mystification. In describing the most effective works created by uh, Berlin Dadaist John Hartfield at the height of his creative powers, Berger explains the operations of a format which could very well apply to the work of Rossler as well, albeit although he expresses it in the generic masculine, so I'm going to read it in the generic feminine. With her scissors, she cuts out events and objects from the scenes to which they belong. She then arranges them in a new, unexpected, discontinuous scene to make a political point. But this much might be achieved by a drawing or even a verbal slogan. The peculiar advantage of photomontage lies in the fact that everything which has been cut out keeps its familiar photographic appearance. We are still looking first at things and only afterwards at symbols. But because these things have been shifted, because the natural continuities which within which they normally exist have been broken, and because they are now arranged to transmit an unexpected message, we are made conscious of the arbitrariness of their continuous normal message. The ideological covering or disguise which fits them so well when they are in their proper place that it becomes indistinguishable from their appearances is abruptly revealed for what it is. Appearances themselves are suddenly showing us how they deceive us. The appearances that Rossler deploys to demystify themselves include the sedimented dirt that underlies the hygienic, gleaming U.S. post-war kitchen and the violence of the economic and political relations that make possible the modernist home as a space of aesthetic perfection. Many commentators have pointed to the startling juxtapositions between violent battlefields and ideal consumerist interior spaces in Rossler's Bringing the War Home House Beautiful series from the late 60s and 70s. Exquisite state-of-the-art kitchens, 
spacious living rooms filled with expensive modernist furniture and art objects, gleaming expanses of picture windows. These images culled from fashion and home decor magazines of the period provide the backdrop for interventions from another world, warfare in Vietnam. A stark reminder that many people in the U.S. went about their business every day without giving a thought to the death and destruction taking place in a country across the Pacific Ocean. Rossler's photo montages literally and figuratively brought the war home into the domestic space of the upper middle class nuclear family, into House Beautiful, the very title of a popular magazine that featured, indeed, advertised and advocated for ideal domestic architecture and design. This is a different space of politics, uh, unlike the large-scale protests against the war in Vietnam taking place across the United States at the time. These demonstrations were populated by people of all ages, races, and genders, uh, but were perhaps, uh, but were best symbolized perhaps by the street fighting man immortalized in the song by the Rolling Stones. In other words, anti-war protests took place in public space with all the cultural baggage connected to that historical phenomenon. Rossler's powerful intervention brought the war home across many registers and scales, pointing us to the newly named war between the sexes as well as class war and other indicators of inequality and oppression. Moving political engagement into the home, these images opened up new avenues of analysis and critique. And I would just add that many of these collages um, were photocopied um, and distributed at demonstrations out in the world, but also in consciousness raising groups, femi feminist consciousness raising groups in living rooms and kitchens uh, across the country. The Vietnam War was the first major U.S. conflict to be televised. Dubbed the Living Room War by writer Michael Arlen, the three major television networks broadcast images from the battlefields most every night on the news programs watched by millions. Uh, writing of the House Beautiful series, feminist architectural historian Beatrice Colomina has argued that Rossler's photo montages remove the division between what is conveyed by the television and domesticity itself. The suburban American house becomes an inhabited television set. Um, those were her words. In this montage by Rossler cleaning the drapes, a cheerful young woman equipped with a modern portable vacuum cleaner pulls aside her enormous brocade curtain to reveal the war. The war here looks like the newspaper or televisual imagery of the era, black and white, somewhat grainy. The woman with the vacuum cleaner is also in black and white, although, um, and you probably can't tell, maybe you can tell, uh, but she's sharper in resolution, suggesting the source to be a magazine with better quality paper and ink. The drapes are a rather foreboding pale mustard yellow, a boundary constituted by color and reference to the border between interior and exterior. Like a theater curtain opening on a performance, the view outside evokes the televisual experience of the nightly newscast, cleaned up enough so that it cannot overly disturb U.S. dinner time. The operation of the photo montage does disturb, however. As Rosalind Deutsch has commented, Rossler brought the American war and the American home together, not only to examine the war's effects on the home, but to stage the intimacy that already existed between the two. If intimacy, excuse me, if intimacy seems counterintuitive in a period of distance warfare, it's useful to remember that transformations in communications technologies were bringing the war home 
in myriad ways. The conventions of documentary and conflict photojournalism have become well established during their emergence during the Spanish Civil War and their consolidation during World War II and, and of course, the Korean War. During the Vietnam War, as photographers like Larry Burroughs, who were initially in favor of U.S. intervention, became disillusioned and increasingly critical, a visual counter discourse arose. This, and uh, this is a Larry Burroughs, um, famous Larry Burroughs, one of his many famous covers for life. Uh, this imagery, which maintained a humanist perspective that produced a U.S. subject of the war, even when the focus ostensibly was on the Vietnamese, circulated widely in print and moving images. The visual information was disturbing. Burned civilian victims of napalm, close-range assassinations, young U.S. soldiers in distress or dying, captured or dead enemy Viet Cong. Yet it took a long time to build enough of a popular movement to end the war. People managed to keep the war out and away, even though they were immersed in photojournalist texts and images that sought to bring the war inside, into the home and consciousness of those who did not experience risk or vulnerability or direct harm. Rossler has written incisively on the limits of photojournalism, arguing that, quote, war photography oscillates between the ideological poles of gore for gore's sake and exaggerated compassion in which the anguish and heroism of the photographer command most attention. Regardless of the photographer's intentions, the economic structures and political pressures of publication usually prevent conflict imagery from producing anything other than a reflection of, as Rossler puts it, personal anxiety or its alternative, numbness. And we could uh, later talk about how this uh, process is intensified in relation to social media today. There is no evading the documentary or the commercial, but photo montage as a format, uh, Rossler feels, disrupts the notion of the real while still employing photographic material, um, as she explained in an interview some years ago. And that does speak to people with great immediacy. Wendy Parker has written that Rossler's Bringing the War Home series blends the disparate elements of domestic interiors and warscapes in such an assiduously matched scale that the images appear sutured together in entirely optically believable ways, resulting in effects so real as to be surreal. In Red Stripe Kitchen, we see a beautiful kitchen with cabinetry so blindingly white it might be mistaken for a scientific laboratory. This chilly clinical effect is worn by the cheery Danish modern crockery, the red tones echoed by the tomatoes piled on the warm wood counter, and the bright red pop art style stripe in the hallway. The housewife we expect to see in her kitchen seems to have just stepped out. Her recipe on the mag in the magazine lies open, waiting to be consulted. Her paring knife and measuring spoons and even a few ingredients are situated as if she just put them down for a moment. Instead of the figure of the housewife, we see two male soldiers in combat fatigues, bent over as if in mid-search. The soldiers are just on the edge of the boundary between the hallway and the kitchen. They're almost there. In balloons, the war is inside the living room. Once again, a pristine white interior aggressively marks the space as modern and privileged. A stylish lucite coffee table and shag rug signal the absence of anything messy or dirty that might mar such accessories. Lush green house plants and the colorful sculptural pile of balloons in the corner bring cheerful life to the scene. Yet there, in the middle of the image on the staircase, midway between the first and second floor, 
a Vietnamese woman in clear distress holds an injured or dead baby. In that liminal space between floors, the woman holds our attention. The space before her is very dark. In roadside ambush, the war is home. Two bodies lie crumpled on the otherwise spotless white living room floor. Beatrice Colomina has argued that, quote, the bright experiments of post-war American architecture are covertly organized by the trauma of war, the trauma of the war that has just finished, and the trauma of the fact that it has not really finished after all. To understand this extraordinary blurring of military culture, she continues, image culture and architectural culture, the condition of the post-war house needs to be dissected. A haunted picture emerges, domesticity at war. It's precisely this traumatic blurring of the temporal and spatial indices of warfare that Mary Favret, who I mentioned earlier, has termed wartime, and that I would situate as the perpetual unfolding of aftermath, and that Rossler also summons in her photo montage series. The political point is ambivalent, and therefore even more powerful. That is, the aestheticization of the US home in the affluent post-World War II era brings about new opportunities, opens up hopeful futures, but emerging from warfare itself brings about only more war. In the winter of 1991-92, in the midst of yet another war, Beatrice Colomino wrote, we're always on the edge of war, on the threshold. The war that inspired these remarks was the first Persian Gulf War, a war that seemed to begin and end quickly, but that has folded and unfolded into the years since then. In her essay from that winter of war in the early 1990s, titled Domesticity at War, in words that could easily have described Rossler's photo montages from the Vietnam War, Colomina considered the question of when war begins and where war takes place, writing, a line has been drawn, literally. In crossing that line, we go to war. We go outside. We leave the homeland and do battle on the outside. But there are always lines in the interior, within the apparent safe confines of the house. Even before we step outside, we are engaged in battle. As we all know, but rarely publicize, the house is a scene of conflict. The domestic has always been at war. The battle of the family, the battle of sexuality, battle for cleanliness, for hygiene. Linking the battle of the family to geopolitics as well as to aesthetics and design, Colomina stretched the terms of feminist criticism in the early 1990s, recognizing class and race-based complicity with nationalist projects of health and hygiene operationalized in the sphere of the home. This work reverberates with a particular turn in feminist criticism in the US <coughs> immediately following the first Persian Gulf War and linked to the emergence of the fields of post-colonial, transnational cultural, and critical race studies, among others. It's this turn that Rossler's first photo montage series pre-mediated and that supports and engages the photo montages of the second series. For example, um, in her 1996 book, Home and Harem, Nation, Gender, Empire, and the Cultures of Travel, Paul Graywell argued that the British Victorian middle and upper class home and the orientalized harem were co-constituted. The whitewashing of the violence work of the imperial state, Graywell showed us, was also operationalized by feminists, uh, in this case white suffragettes, who strove to establish a modern home that would be safe from the barbarisms attributed to those from outside the parameters of the nation state. 
Writing from the context of the U.S., Amy Kaplan argued in her first book, The Anarchy of Empire and the Making of U.S. Culture, published in 2002, that notions of the domestic and foreign mutually constitute one another, since international struggles for domination abroad profoundly shape representations of American national identity at home, such that cultural phenomena we think of as domestic or particularly national are forged in the crucible of foreign relations. Thus, traditional understanding of imperialism as a one-way imposition of power in distant colonies masks the ambiguities and contradictions of imperial relations in the formation of a national culture. Writing specifically of representational practices in tender violence, domestic visions in the age of U.S. imperialism, published in the year 2000, Laura Wexler described how a group of proto-feminist photographers at the turn of the 19th century turned the averted gaze of domestic sentiment that had emerged through the years of legalized slavery and territorial occupation and its aftermath to their professional advantage by developing an innocent eye and thereby ensuring, quote, that from the panorama of foreign wars fought by white American men, white American women would construct visions of domestic peace. As Wexler points out, the photography of so-called new women naturalized the structural consequences of slavery, colonization, industrialization, and forced assimilation by erasing the violence of colonial encounters in the very act of portraying them. The gendered innocent eye of white middle-class U.S. female photographers of this era masked and distorted what otherwise must have been more apparent, hatred, fear, collusion, resistance, and mimicry on the part of the subaltern, compulsion, presumption, confusion, brutality, and soul murder on the part of the colonial agent. These photographic images of domestic life, Wexler argued, can be read against the grain to expose cracks in the mirror of history. It's these cracks in the mirror of history that Rossler's photo montages not only expose but also act upon. Rather than erasing the signs and sensibilities of colonial and imperial violence work, Rossler's photo montages make visible the cost of such cleansing uh, and offer a critique that we can affiliate to transnational feminist critical practices and activism against endless war. The thematic of war as military action as well as the expanded field of the violence work of the state uh, reverberates through much of Rossler's work across media and format. For example, B-52 and Baby's Tears created in 1972 is a sculpture that depicts the imprint of a B-52 bomber in the moss-like texture of living plants. Prototype Sandbox B-2 from 2006 offers the form of a stealth bomber worked in sand in uh, a wood box. Fascination with the game of the exploding historical hollow leg from 1983 is an installation piece set in a simulated war room. 2003's uh, Patriot Patriotic Jello Salad, which I have to admit is one of my favorite pieces, offers us a recipe for a molded and layered jello dessert that parodies ambrosia ingredients, replacing tiny marshmallows and chunks of fruit with toy soldiers and military hardware. And the tagline is, um, feeds a small army. Um, I could mention, that's an actual recipe, you could actually make it. Um, I could mention many more works. Um, most importantly, so much of Rossler's art that addresses homelessness, commercialization, media manipulation, and so many other issues can be understood to expand our understanding of the violence at work in the world today. 
But I want to turn to her second photo montage series, House Beautiful, Bringing the War Home, and a little more briefly um, as I begin to wrap up my comments for today. Without projecting too much, um, when I look at the second series, uh, I feel like Rosler's mad, um, like, like really furious. Like here we are again, again, invited to participate in a show with Artists Against the War following George W. Bush's re-election in 2004, Rossler decided to return to photo montage. As she explains, I just knew I'd be asked why I'd return to something after 40 years and I had a snappy comeback ready. Tell me what we, the United States, are doing differently now. How is this quagmire different from the one back then? For this reboot, as August D Jordan Davis has termed it, Rossler had to address a different context in terms of the art world and commodification in an era of digitalization and globalized media. As she has written, I also wanted to repoliticize the House Beautiful works, which were, all too predictably, being stripped of their directly political meaning. They had been agitational in the street, but were now, on a museum or gallery wall, aesthetic objects from a, a past moment. Inka Shuba has described Rossler as a war reporter of a different kind, and I think that's apt in many ways. But there's so much more at work here than reportage or straightforward representation. Along with other formats chosen, chosen by Rossler, and I've shown you like a few examples, there are more, photo montage disturbs the authority of official truth and the allure of appearances, questioning the value systems of the art world, but also of capitalism itself, deconstructing gender and race without reconstructing vanguard identitarian pieties, as Karen Moss has put it, by disrupting the presumed reading Rossler forces the viewer to confront their criticality. That's a good lead-in to the montage photo op from 2004. The now familiar white modernist interior sports two young girls, dead, one in, iconic e in an iconic Eames lounge chair, while the picture windows reveal a fiery scene of battle. Two identical fashionistas look into the mirror of their flip phones. Discussing this second series, Rossler has described photomontage as a metaform by through which, by which through the very return to the format she had not used since the early 1970s, she could signal a certain retro element in the war itself. Thus, the televisual reveal of cleaning the drapes from the earlier series is echoed with the difference in the gray drape from 2008. Other kinds of resonances abound. The massive picture windows in Vacation Getaway Bring the War Home Once Again in Lounging Woman from 2004. Makeup Hands Up from the 1967-72 series slips into the second series effortlessly. Yet differences remain. Years have passed. Wars are in different places. My students, I have just have to add that my students called this um, uh, Jared Kushner goes to Iraq. Um, <laughs> I thought that was pretty apt. Um, uh, years have passed. Wars are in different places. The draft has been eliminated. Weaponry and communications have changed. The conditions of production have altered as well. The second series is still cut and pasted paper, but uh, photographed and reproduced digitally, lending a slightly different feel to the imagery, a more contemporary uh, and therefore to us familiar gloss. The image from the second series that was most productively disturbing to my students who'd been studying the history of conflict photojournalism for a term is a complex montage entitled Election Lindy. Created by Rossler in that grim and terrible year, 2004, 
In this image, we see Lindy England, one of the central figures of the scandal of the fo photographs leaked from the Abu Ghraib prison just outside of Baghdad, uh, in her iconic stance, uh, holding the leash at the other end of which should be, could be, a debased and abused prisoner. We don't see who she has command of in this instance, which does not obviate the terror because we know the original source. The terror is only enhanced. Other images that refer to torture are distributed throughout the gleaming kitchen, yet another state-of-the-art domestic interior. Um, the piece is dated, uh, uh, it was made in 2004 and in some ways could not be made now because references to print culture abound. Newspapers and magazines as well as books all offer only banal titles juxtaposed with imagery of horror. While the war is clearly taking place outside, as we can see through the tall transparent windows, the war is unalterably and much more viscerally embedded in the home, uh, in the culture, in domesticity. It's a devastating photo montage, insisting on our responsibility, demanding that we see what we already know. One of the most pressing questions for photojournalism is this problem of politics. Why, if searing images of death and destruction can be brought back home from the distance wars of modernity, do decent people not act immediately to prevent any further violence. We all experience the numbing cavalcade of dire imagery in media, in our moment intensely so on social media. For an artist like Martha Rossler, a different tack must be taken. The disturbance of time and space in wartime aftermath that's evoked by Rossler's photo montages requires us to open up lines of thinking uh, about the present, to think and take responsibility bringing wars waged by the United States throughout this long durée into the hyper-commodified environment of magazine and newspapers. In these two series, across a very long span, Rossler demonstrates the impossibility of delimiting domestic space as an innocent refuge from public and international spheres, an impossibility that challenges representational politics across formats and practices, televisual, photographic, cinematic, social media, analog, digital, etc. Such disturbances of here and there, now and then, resonate as powerful aftermaths of wars visible and invisible, declared and undeclared, always already underway. Thank you very much. I'd love to talk with you. Please, let's talk. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. It's a wonderful question. I gave this paper last week at Berkeley, and um, someone else brought up memes uh, as, and, and suggested that I think about them. And I really think it's, it's, it's 
I, okay, I think it's official now. I have to think about memes. Um, but I, I really appreciate your adding humor to this. Well, and, and I've probably left this out, but Rossler's actually, uh, much of her work is actually very funny. She has a great sense of humor, and some of her pieces are deliberately very fun, funny. Um, these photo montages, not so much, uh, but some of her other work, um, it, she really um, evokes humor in a really skilled and helpful way. So I think humor is really important. Some of the some of the greatest war movies of all time use humor in in um, in really um, effective ways. So um, humor is disruptive. Um, humor, especially in the face of uh, violence uh, and grief, is um, is an important component, I think, of um, uh, that, that helps people um, develop the strength and power to endure. So, um, so it is a really important issue. But I haven't thought about it too much in terms of very current um, social media practices um, that are, especially that are, comp that are putting together text and image. But I really need to think about it. And if other people have thoughts or suggestions, I'd love to hear more. <laughs> Yeah. So there's a saying that is Portuguese, uh, "Rir para não chorar." So there's nothing we can do but laugh. Yeah. So I'm wondering, in case of you know all this tragedy, is humor to be applied or analyzed in any form of fashion? Absolutely, absolutely. Laugh and then kick butt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You started with these really um, powerful questions uh, that sort of frame the notion of war in like a domestic environment talking about like school shootings and different things like that. And so I'm wondering, um, as, you, as you go deeper into this body of work, do you circle back um, to sort of reframing those questions or after we after you venture through this journey? Because I feel like, like I wrote down one that just a couple that jumped out. How do we know when we're at war, when war takes place at a distance? And so I feel like there could be such an interesting way to think about that if you're framing it in like a modern notion of like police brutality or yeah. um, you know, sort of different spaces and how we look at, you know, even like the inner city is sometimes like Absolutely. Frank, war zone if you look at like Chicago and some of those things. Of course. So do you circle back to that and where does that I haven't yet in this paper in the um, the the book that was getting passed around um, only um, uh, um, looks at actual like official warfare or I don't know if you can say that the war on terror is Declare, officially declared or not, but um, um, uh, looking at um, conflicts that, if let's say, involve the Department of Defense, say. But I'm um, uh, I'm really interested in this in this um, uh, police power, war power nexus because I think that the thinking about the ways in which um, police have always been used to uh, enact white supremacy in the United States to um, uh, use violence uh, to um, control populations of one kind or another is completely closely connected to um, the way uh, militaries are also organized and deployed abroad. And so, of course, violence in urban um, settings and even violence in non-urban settings, as we saw uh, at Standing Rock or you know, in, around any kind of issue like that, uh, 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 is, is a very widespread phenomenon that's deeply connected with this. And it, I think it really powers my interest in deconstructing this idea that warfare is only something that happens. 
elsewhere. So yes, I'm completely committed to exploring this further. Have you found anything that, that sort of resembles the evil image that's up there now, but like, you know, addressing sort of the, the school shootings, for example, and the, you know, the March for Our Lives and some of the organizing that's been done recently, like have you found anything sort of in that vein that is almost sort of like a callback to this? Well, I n lots of people are working along these lines. I mean, I'm really knocked out by, um, I believe you pronounce her name Michael Siegel. It's S-E-I-G-A-L, I think. Uh, the book is called Violence Work, uh, and it's very much about the blurry line between police and military and domestic and foreign. It just came out last year, or within the last year from Duke. It's a really brilliant book. It just absolutely knocked my socks off. Uh, really important. Um, uh, I think that Stuart Schrader uh, has a book that's about to come out that I've heard a lot of uh, in talks. Um, Ophelia Cuevas works on uh, incarceration in California, but very much you know, in this, uh, along, along the lines of um, uh, um, warfare. Um, uh, I think that the people who are working on prisons, police, uh, police power, uh, and um, critiques of the war on terror, that, that, that more and more these conversations are happening together in the same conferences, uh, in the same classrooms, that we're knitting these things together and that they, I mean, when I first started working on, um, I first started working all, on all of this stuff as a project on GPS and this, the first Persian Gulf War, and boy, I was lonely, you know. I mean, I, I was in a women's studies department and people were like, you're, like, you're, you're doing what? You know, um, so and I was like, I can't stop thinking about GPS, but I'm in a women's studies department. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, this is why Elisa is such a special colleague for me. <laughs> um, uh, but um, uh, th that's not true anymore. You know, that's just not true anymore. And also, we, you know, you can talk about imperialism as a project of racialization. So when we talk about race here in the United States, we understand that it's you know, connected to global forces as well. So we don't have to only have US ethnic studies versus something else there. I mean, sometimes it's still a battle in some programs. But um, these, they, these interconnections are so important, and there's a lot of new scholarship that's making these connections. And that's, in a very bleak times, I think the new scholarship that's coming out uh, from junior scholars is just stunning. So, so you know, it's happening. Happening. Yes. Um, yes. Sorry. Um, so I'm moving so this way. This. I uh -huh. have so many ideas, and I'm just, I'm just so great. But I want to. I have just have a couple of observations. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much they hold up. So, in the second version of the paintings, it looks like a lot more of these glamorous. Yeah, fashion. American culture are going other places. Yeah. Right? Yes. So I saw this great exhibition in Paris over the winter about Zoot magazine. Oh, yeah. And I, Which I, created Robert Kappa. There would have been no Robert Kappa without Zoot. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I had never looked at so much of it before, and it's 
in a way, rock folks picking up not just on this kind of mean male artist tradition, but also that like it is embedded in the magazine. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Yes, and I just, I need, uh, the first thing I would say, I'll answer that first, which is I just need to learn a whole lot more about that. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I just came out of a book where I was like writing about 18th century aerostation and uh, panoramic paintings. So I'm like, you know, kind of like getting myself back into the like 20th century, never mind 21st century. Um, although I'm really happy to be back. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of happy to be back. Um, uh, um, so, so yeah, I need to I need to learn more about that. But I, I yeah, you're absolutely right. Once you start looking for a photo montage, it's all over the place. Um, but um, and that's that's part of its power, but also part of its problematic. And so I don't want to make too many claims for it. But I, I think the fact that the fact that it's so deeply embedded in the commercial world doesn't obviate some of its disturbing effects. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it's part of the every. I'm, I'm particularly fascinated by, you know, everyday militarism. So, so I think that this is one of the ways in which um, some of these power relations insinuate themselves into our everyday life, as well as um, I wouldn't say resistance, but maybe disturbances of that order are also part of our everyday life and available to us in a, for us if we want to mobilize our attention uh, in that in that way. Um, but. What you said first, I wanted to respond to. Oh, the outside versus inside. Yes, I've noticed that too, but um, but I've also kind of selectively chosen images from the second series. So um, there are a lot of them that 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 that, re that have interiors um, as well. But some of the interiors are in the war zone, um, uh, and and there's there's less of a concern with the architecture of a post-war modernist house um, uh, in the second series and in the first which is something I need to sort out more, um, absolutely. But there are plenty of images still inside you are kind of US style, um, comfortable upper middle class homes as well. The, I, this image in particular interests me because I feel like it's a critique of like the Marie Colvin kind of, uh, you know, photojournalist, female photojournalist goes, goes to the war zone. She's holding a, she's holding a camera, which I thought was, was interesting. And wearing a, I don't know, it could be a wedding dress, sure. Yeah, it could be a wedding dress. Um, um, they're, they're, they're powerful images, but they are definitely distinct, and I, I need to not smush them together too much. And I think she's tried to signal that by flipping the titles a bit herself um, as, as, as well. I, I found um, two people who are influenced by Rossler. I just will show you these slides. The first one um, is a woman who I believe lives in Spain. I haven't been able to find out too much about her. It popped up on Pinterest. Uh, and it's called After Rossler, and that's an Andrew Gardner photograph from the Civil War. Uh, uh, and she's, you know, um, uh, borrowed the pulling apart the drapes um, with a glamorous woman. Um, this one, Hussein Seller, who didn't uh, just, you know, has an Instagram account and puts stuff up. He's in the advertising world, uh, and um, he, um, uh, I thought this seemed to me very much kind of after, after Rossler, so I thought it, it's interesting to see how this kind of approach starts to circulate, and does it lose its edge, or does it keep it, you know, uh, is there an edge to keep, um, you know, maybe gets sort of raised by, by some of these borrowing. But I know you wanted to ask me something. Yes. 
Yeah. So far as part of the power of these images is the way they, the way they reproduce what advertising does best, right? In this mode, right? This in a way that's, you know, advertising is very powerful, and in a way, advertising has won, right? It does dominate our culture and how we act, and it's yeah. you know, the kind of you know, Sierra's point about the sensible, the distribution of the sensible, right? It's controlled by advertising. Right. In a way, what Russell does, maybe at one might argue that at best it reproduces what advertising does. And so I'm just, you know, how does the history of advertising fit in here? And yeah. maybe does that in some ways explain the difference between these two sequences of how advertising has changed between the 60s and the you know, 2000s? Is there anything there? I don't know. You know it's just a That's a great question. It's a great question. I think that. I want to be careful. I mean, I definitely, I'm not interested in reproducing a Frankfurt School denunciation of, you know, mass culture because yeah. that was me in college. <laughs> um, uh, uh, that's a facetious way to put it, but but I mean seriously, I think that because because every day that because these materials are available to people who don't necessarily have access to fine arts always. I don't like to say they must be denied or, you know. Um, uh, I would say that your comment reminds me that I need to be a little more skeptical about the fact that my students liked Rossler's work the best out of some of the more difficult contemporary photography that we were looking at because possibly it was more familiar to them and more accessible and legible to them. Um, and they could both recognize it was familiar enough and yet it allowed them to understand a critique that they could then participate in um, so that was important and I like that this was an entry point for them um, because these are students who definitely have never been in a museum in their life and who um, don't um, usually look at any experimental photography and frankly don't even look at you know much photojournalism either uh, so uh, so the fact that this was work that they were comfortable with is both really great and also there's a limit there, right? So, um, so I think that that bears saying. Um, I think that the, com yes, I think I need to think more about, about commercial art in general, but that goes along with, you know, print culture. If, if I'm d doing anything with this, I really have to think more about print culture just in, in, in general. Um, and that's true for any project on war art because so much of war art takes place in magazines and newspapers, so just in general. So as I'm thinking about this new project, that's kind of something I need to bone up on more.
both advertising and and the advertising and the stuff that isn't supposed to be advertising, but because it's in a newspaper, of course, is advertising. So. Thank you for your question. I haven't been look. I I haven't been looking at memes at all, and I haven't been look. I haven't been. Um, I absorb and consume social media and participate in social media myself, just uh, um, uh, in my life. But I haven't been. Um, um, I haven't been studying it too much. But I, you know, I'm obviously since it keeps coming up, I need to think about it much more vigorously um, than I have been. Um, so I can't answer that. Um, um, I'm sorry. I wish I could. Um, just to add, maybe mm -hmm. also the first photos. I, mm -hmm. But I'm ignorant of that era. But yeah. it reminded me of some 1930s, some anti-Semitic stuff. That sure. Looks like montage, but in a you know different sense. So sure. Uh, these 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 techniques can be used by uh, across political persuasions uh, and and convictions. Of course, they're not only. I'm not making a resistance argument um, only um, here. Um, I think that they're available. I'm fascists used some of these techniques in the 30s um, absolutely um, to deploy anti-Semitic messages and, uh, and other kinds of messages. And um, uh, I, I think that we, we could probably find, I think we could find um, examples uh, of, of very conservative or reactionary or fascist or authoritarian uh, imagery produced with the, the kinds of techniques that I'm talking about, but they are more—they are were—they were—they are most commonly associated with uh, communist artists in the, in the 1930s, from what I've read. But that doesn't mean that it's only limited to them, because these techniques appeal to lots of young people, um, and again, because it's easy to produce and with something that that people could put together um, without a lot of expense. Oil painting is very expensive, um, uh, for example. Um, everybody's got magazines and newspapers and some glue and scissors kicking around. So, um, uh, so but, but yes, and I, do, I don't mean to suggest that this, um, this format is only available to the politically, to the people whose politics I agree with. Absolutely, and that's a great reminder. So in the Libya photo, you shared a quote about the idea that the war sort of takes place every moment in our kitchens, in our homes, in our gender dynamics, and whatever else. Mm -hmm. Like war being eternal and everywhere. I think that argument lands well enough. I guess I just worry about like, what do we do when our language has a habit of expanding out mm -hmm. eternally? 
language struck is usable mm -hmm. while still acknowledging the, the impact of where it plays in, in my purchases for, for knives or knives or whatever. Like, does the question make sense? Yes, it makes sense. Maybe on a hanging note here. No, I, I think it's a good, I, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I When I began the talk, I, I, I said that um, it seems like an absurdity to ask, you know, where and when is war, when, um, you know, people who um, are being bombed um, know that they're in a war. There just really isn't any question about that. Um, what is the value of expanding this out to the point where it just seems almost meaningless, that it's just everywhere and all around us, et cetera, et cetera? For me, as somebody who grew up during the Vietnam War, and has you know gone through those successive wars, um, and who came to the un learn about the history of colonialism really late, relatively speaking, uh, in my life. I mean, I didn't learn anything about it in high school, uh, and only a little bit in college. It was really in graduate school where I thought, wait a minute, I really have to stop and start, go back and just start reading things kind of all over again. Um, and understanding things I already knew in a different lens. I mean, I had lived through the Vietnam War without understanding that it had anything to do with colonialism, right? Just, <laughs> you know? So, um, so to me, the question of when war begins and ends is a really important question for, for the privileged, right? And when, when one is a member of, in one way or another, there's ways I'm not privileged, but there are a lot of ways in which I am. Um, uh, people like me, for us the question of when and where war is and when it starts and when it begins might seem like it's a, just a kind of a nice philosophical question, but to me it's vitally important. You know, it could end up being a legal question if we're going to talk about reparations. It could end up being a legal question if we're going to talk about war crimes uh, and putting people, you know, in the Hague or something. It could get to that. But to even before we can, we can get to that, we have to like actually sort of ask it in a more philosophical way um, and sort of loosen the idea uh, from that it's just something that the military is doing far away and that, is, um, that has a justification, that actually has a rationale. So, um, so I feel there's a limit to the way in which I'm asking these questions. Not everybody is, everybody in the world is part of this conversation, this is a talk I give in the United States. I don't, wouldn't give this talk somewhere else necessarily. And even in the United States, I would be somewhat careful about where and how I would, I would, um, I would p pitch it, you know? So um, uh, I think, but, but, but I think it's really important to try to expand the notion in order to get back to using it more precisely. Does that make sense? I guess the, so I might be bringing a different set of assumptions into the conversation. Sure. So my, my only, when I hear the, so in my lifetime, we've been in a military conflict at every moment mm -hmm. of that breath. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's eternal argument feels pretty salient. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't know if there's been a point the U.S. hasn't been, I and mean we've got soldiers parked on like what, 156 bases or something wild, mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. The data is bewildering, dizzying, et cetera, and it's been that way for the entire time I've existed, mm -hmm. which is not that long in the span of a nation or anything else, but it's long enough for me to have no sense of scale beyond mm -hmm. my, my own sort of limited bucket. So like, if it is pretty persuasively 
external for me, like what do I do about it? Because the, I think one of the punchline questions was, so if we are at war, like why are we not very, very not okay with that? Like that, mm -hmm. I guess I don't know what else to be, which maybe calls back to the memes and humor. I don't know if humor makes sense to me, but, but the core like, uh, you know, like I don't know. What do we actually do? Apathy feels like the only thing I've got in the bag for answers to. Oh, we're still at war today, tomorrow, forever. Cool, cool. Mm -hmm. What's the alternative? Because I, I, I guess, while yes, we can all leap out and make some sweet photo montage, I'm not sure if that's going to move the needle any further than the excellent work that's already been made has done. Mm -hmm. Like, are you dismissing the art because? I guess I, I don't know how we can actually make also, are you change? putting like a lot of pressure on the examination of this <laughs> to solve the war? Like, I'm just trying to understand I what you're saying. That so, so you're right. I shouldn't roast sorry, the artist. Sorry, we're still going to be in war. No, it's fine. I guess my, my frustration is that like the, the problem seems out of human scale. I don't see, I, I don't know what to do. Oh, it isn't out of human scale at all. Um, I, I think it's not. I don't know. I mean, I, I've been alive when there was an actual anti-war movement and people did stop a war. So, um, uh, and I was alive when um, people of different races in the United States, it, when it was illegal for them to marry or, t or when it was illegal for African Americans to vote. When it, you know, I wasn't alive when it was illegal for women to vote. Not that old, but... Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, I don't, and I'm not making a liberal argument like we just, you know, turn to the political sphere. Um, but I've seen um, a very significant social change um, occur uh, in my lifespan, um, and I've seen it shift again. Um, I talk about these things. I talk about war all the time. I'm, I consider myself as a scholar involved in critical military studies. I work with a lot of people who work on security studies. I insist on calling it military studies, even though I'm very interested in policing, um, uh, uh, I, I use the word military these days because I think it's important to remind people that we, um, they ought, I don't want to leave the study of the military to the military, to the war colleges. So, um, so um, I, I am furious. I am really, really angry. I'm completely outraged, like with every core and fiber of my being. And I'm an academic, and so I turn my uh, actions and energies in academia to um, addressing these kinds of topics. Um, I'm in the humanities, so uh, for me, a lot of that uh, uh, means that I'm looking at representational practices. That's my political work, and I'm a teacher, so I spend a lot of time trying to convince kids who are looking at memes that it, um, they should think about the fact that the country's at war, and that's why, at least in the state of California, in my public university, we barely have light bulbs. So, um, and we don't have any of the equipment that you see at this university. So, um, so, you know, and they should be mad about it. I want them to be mad about it, but not to be defeatist. Um, uh, there's all kinds of avenues of organizing that are available to people. There's lots of people who are organizing in the United States. All you gotta do is just like go out in the corner and start whistling and they'll show up. You can join them. There's lots of people doing lots of things. And with social media, it's extremely easy to get involved in things. 
So, uh, so there's lots to do. There's lots to do. I think the first thing is to recognize the enormity. Um, there's a lot of grief and a feeling of being overwhelmed that is a very natural and understandable reaction to that, that recognition. Um, but there's such a wonderful world of alliance and affinity, wonderful people to work with, so many great things to learn. It's very energizing and hopeful. Uh, and um, uh, things get worse and we work harder. We work harder. So uh, I think that I, 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 when I talk about these things and we talk about endless war, um, uh, we have endless, uh, endless activities to uh, fight against it. You know, I think you have to be pragmatic. So, you know, you work at the liberal, you know, I'll vote. Um, uh, um, uh, I'm going to vote. Um, uh, uh, but, um, you know, there's other things to do, too. So, um, and I really find that studying, studying um, uh, war and police power is, is very empowering uh, in and of itself because learning the history allows you to understand how it's changed, what it has been, what it can be, and how we can change things in the future. I really, I find it very empowering. Yeah. Especially around gentrification and housing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I'm over 40, and in my generation, we, um, I think, it, you know, in our 20s and 30s, we were involved in seeing, like, like you described, stopping things. Um, and I think it's easier um, to see that um, at times on a small and local level. So in, um, I, I have students who feel similar in their, you know, when I'm showing them um, agitational work or activist artwork, um, they're shocked to see some of the things that either happen, you know, we're, we just, we're looking at Latin American pro-social practice or activist work, um, or even here, in, you know, also in the United States, um, and the kinds of things that were enacted were amazing and sometimes don't get the same um, historiographical kind of coverage as other kinds of, you know, um, like artwork in a museal so, but I think my, um, I'm not to the, intending to say, well, I tell my students that, that, that but um, I think functioning on a really hyper-local level is one way in which you can see the effect of mm -hmm. um, people coming together and enacting resistance and seeing, seeing that play out. For sure. Friends and 
all the things they went through in the 60s dealing with that and friends that have died in Vietnam. Um, and I know people and families that have been very affected by all the wars we're in. And also the number of soldiers that die at the Marine base and the ones that die in car crashes because they were drunk. I mean, this happens in our community all the time. But it's not visceral. And I think the, li the lack of a draft, even as a mother of three boys, I have always felt that we should have had a draft. Mm -hmm. and, and it would be over. Be nearly in the yeah. same wars as we are. Yeah. And the lack of that, I think, has made us into two communities. Um, I know many, many kids who have joined up for the military, which is not as easy as you think it is anymore, um, but have done that for economic reasons. There's None of them are particularly political. They've all done it because there were no jobs. Sure. Um, so there's very much two Americas, and I think we need to get back to one, and you always have educational deferments and all that sort of thing. But not having a draft, I think, is, is the biggest um, and has, has insulated most Americans. And even where I live, it's in my face. I know these kids. I know the parents. The guy across the street went over three times. Um, they uh, it's still uninsulated. I really appreciate your mentioning that. I agree with you 100%. Um, uh, and um, I guess I'm fortunate at, at, at my university Many of my students are um, uh, have either been uh, in military service or are going into military service or have family members in military service, or they're DACA. <laughs> so, um, uh, so everything is very, very immediate in, uh, in our classroom, and yet they really don't know the history necessarily so of things, and so um, it's, it, it's exciting to have an opportunity to help people put things that they're experiencing into some kind of perspective. I often get people who are working in drone operations at um, uh, the air base just north of us, but they just, they don't know anything about the history of air power. And once they do, they, they, they get kind of excited about it. And it's, it, you know, it's interesting to, to hear their perspectives. Um, I think that, but I, 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 I don't only hold, I, I think that the other problem is a very globalized mediascape um, there's been a consolidation of the ownership of um, media um, during the time period that we're talking about. Uh, and so while I don't think it's ever been great, there have always been you know, robber barons running newspapers and things, um, I think the situation's very difficult now. It's very, very hard for, for young people to get, for any of us to get information um, of any kind that's very useful. So, uh, so it's hard for people to have of any age to have much of a visceral sense of the war, uh, the wars that are going on um, uh, anywhere, uh, unless except in their own little, you know, Ballywood. But there's, I think, the more um, public conversation we can have in the United States about violence in general, the violence um, uh, that um, uh, young people of color face uh, in the United States, especially young men, uh, the uh, the intensification of incarceration. The, um, the sort of military-industrial entertainment complex, if you will. There are lots of ways in which we can talk about this stuff. It isn't. It, it doesn't get too overwhelming if we um, learn how to analyze it in relation to both material uh, culture and ideology in various kinds of ways. And once you start to do that, you start to put the pieces back together again, um, then people can uh, make more thoughtful decisions about 
what they want to do about some of these things. Um, uh, one of the students in uh, the class we, uh, on photojournalism that I taught this fall um, discovered that his grandfather was very ill and he had to miss class and while he was away his grandfather died and when he came back he told me that his grandmother had told him something about burn pits and um, he wanted, wanted to know if I knew anything about what burn pits are. They actually um, know somebody, Zoe Wool, who um, writes about um, medical um, uh, repercussions of the war on terror um, and um, uh, there are a lot of veterans who are um, losing their lives because of the toxicity from the burn pits that uh, where military waste um, is disposed of and the, and the burning goes on 24 hours a day. It doesn't just affect U.S. military personnel, it affects anybody who lives in the vicinity. Um, and there's terrible respiratory diseases coming out uh, from these very long wars. Um, so um, he said that when he was in the hospital, all the all the doctors and nurses kind of knew all about it. This was in San Diego. Uh, and um, it's just like as a matter of course. You know, if, if you can, he was so incensed once he started to learn about it and I sent him some links. I don't know what that kid's gonna do in his life, but I have a feeling it's gonna be something about burn pits. Uh, so, you know, you just need to like light a little spark un under people and start talking about it. thinks that's a great question. Actually, Rossler addresses it herself, and she um, she has written that she did not use Photoshop to, in the second series. She could have, but she didn't. She cut and pasted, pasted as she did in the first series, but then she digitally photographed it, which ended up smoothing it out. And I have to say, when I was at the exhibit at the Jewish Museum last weekend, I was looking at the, the ones from the early, it was the first time I got to see the the Vietnam series in person. I've only seen it online or in books. And so I was like going right up to it and kind of looking like this and I was trying to see. It didn't look cut and pasted. It actually looked digitally photographed and reproduced, even the first series. And I can't imagine that, and it, they were all uniform size, which I also can't imagine was true. So I really would like to ask Rossler, you know, what happened and how these things were materially produced. Because right now the first series on exhibit looks materially very much like the second, just as slick and flat um, as the second one. So there are some important questions you know, about that, absolutely. But she did not use Photoshop. She cut and pasted, apparently. Yeah? How big are they? They're about, that's a great question. They're, they're, they're about this big. They're about this big, at least as I saw them exhibited. Uh, I think the original ones had to be the size of House Beautiful, Life Magazine, and you know, Better Homes and Gardens, right? Which would were large format magazines, but if the pages came from there, and she was pasting and working with them, I would like imagine that was her canvas. That was her canvas, right? Exactly, exactly. And some of her images were borrowed, photocopied, and used by other anti-war groups as well, which was fine with her. They went all over the place in their own version of going viral. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Thank you.